Do you crave more wonder, creativity, radiance, and sensuality in your life? If your whole body answered a resounding yes in longing to this question, then you're not alone. For most of us, the obligations and expectations long upheld by the modern overculture make it really challenging to prioritize and devote to a more embodied life connected to our truest knowing and deepest desires. My guest today and her incredible body of work opened my heart and mind to an entirely new way of being six years ago. Jenna Ward is a leading feminine embodiment coach and embodiment teacher living between Australia and Holland. She works with hundreds of coaches and women to deepen their feminine gifts, inhabit their bodies more fully and coach in embodied ways. Jenna has worked with women across five continents, partnering with them to discover the endless depth, beauty and wisdom of their own bodies knowing. In 2017, Jenna founded the School of Embodied Arts, an international training organization and community devoted to cultivating the skills of living and coaching in body-honoring feminine ways. I'm so proud to hold this coaching certification and to be a master coach and teacher for the School of Embodied Arts alongside my personal business. And I'm really excited to share this conversation between Jenna and I, and I hope it leaves you feeling all tingly and gets your creative and sensual juices flowing. Enjoy. Welcome to the Sensualchemy School podcast, where we explore grief, pleasure, and the sometimes messy, always beautiful paradox that exists between the two. Here, as we center the experience of our wise bodies, Through the archetypal feminine, we ask. Within a culture that perceives emotional, intuitive and creative intelligence as inferior and avoids pain at all costs, what if grief were our compass and pleasure our medicine? My name is Kate Leeper and I'm so grateful you're here. Hi, everybody. I am actually overjoyed to welcome a really beautiful and important woman in my life to a conversation today here on the Central Alchemy School podcast. Welcome, Jenna Ward. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I feel very honored to be here. Oh, thank you. And I love our chats anyway. So I figured let's record one because who knows where it goes. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to trust that wherever we do venture today is going to be thought provoking and curious and, you know, it will benefit whoever stumbles across this episode. So I often wish that people that I admire would record podcasts as if like just record their conversations with their friends, because I'm just so curious what other people talk about in those contexts. So very happy for us to record our chat today. Yeah. And then it's just less kind of shiny and polished and, Mm -hmm. you know, less of an agenda. And I just feel like there's so much richness available when we kind of cross our fingers and just hope for the best. (laughs) Living on the edge. But in saying that, perhaps we can ground into our conversation today, Jenna, by contemplating and feeling into our bodies before we begin with a couple of questions that I like to ask each guest. 
And the first one being, I'm curious if you can notice any textures or qualities of loss present in your body right here, right now. I've been contemplating that question because you gave it to me just five minutes ago as well. And there are definitely, for me, many threads of loss that are present right now that relate to, so I have a busy life, a busy kid, a busy business. And for me, there's often just like rush, rush, rush through the day. And what I really yearn for, the thing that I yearn for most, and of course I want my family to be well and healthy and, you know, da, da, da. The thing that really makes me tick in life is those moments when there's this infusion of devotion and a little bit of magic and that pause and that little exhale. And there's that space for you to be and really feel that you're being. It's not just being present, but it's like being in the web of aliveness. Mm -hmm. I love that feeling and I hunger for it. And very often I feel like the pace of our overculture, which I opt into as well, um, I feel like a lot of times I'm often, the inertia of life often feels like it's robbing me of those moments. And mm -hmm. it's a real act of consistent discipline, not just devotion, but consistent discipline to carve that space and time back. So the threads that are present for me around grief and loss at the moment are like where at a personal level, it's where are those moments mm -hmm. where oh, there is the magic of aliveness having its way and ravishing me. And there is a, a bigger grief and loss I feel around so many, particularly women that I know the woman next door, the woman I was on the phone to this morning, the friend I spoke with, the client I had that ex like, we call it burnout. We call it exhaustion. We call it all these things. And to me it is the absence of those replenishing moments of <sighs> radiance mm -hmm. that many of us are not taught how to access that aren't necessarily valued by the overculture and thus become really deficient in our days. Mm -hmm. And that to me is a huge sense of loss mm -hmm. of like what is actual, actually in my philosophy, the good meaning and purpose right. of life. So I got a, I got some of that present today mm. and I was bitching about it to a friend this morning <laughs> on the phone. <laughs> yeah. My three-year-old is on to me and on to me and I just want a minute for like, ah. Oh. Mm -hmm. I feel that loss is very often connected to longing. Like we grieve for what we lost because we long for it still. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, longing is desire. It's yearning. It's something that I think is very sacred and holy and what can give our life purpose, what it is. We all yearn for different things. And so in a lot of ways, I feel like that ache 
that we Mm -hmm. can experience. Sometimes it can be called grief and it might be grief. Sometimes it might be closer to longing. Sometimes it might be closer to loss. Sometimes it might be closer to desire. And I, I feel they're all on a spectrum and all pretty closely connected in my body's felt experience. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, you've come straight in, beautifully segued into my next question, which is, and it might be the same, right? Or or another side of the same coin, but what longing is bubbling away in you right now? I have answered the question that I long for those moments, (laughs) but I feel what helps them to land that that longing, what supports that way of living to land is having a formal practice of really cultivating that in my body consistently. So, you know, whatever your flavor is, some people love seated meditation or moving meditation or different types of sadhanas or embodiment practices. I'm, uh, I'm at a point in my life at the moment, I'm just have come, I'm just in my first trimester of pregnancy. And so I've been really exhausted and my usual devotional practices, I just haven't had the energy to do those. And I found from the loss of those formal devotional practices, it makes it more challenging for me to find those moments in informal ways throughout the day. Mm -hmm. It's almost like you don't go to the gym and do your run on your treadmill. I never go to the gym and run on the treadmill in <laughs> my neither. entire life, but let's use that as an analogy. <laughs> you don't go to the gym, you're not running on the treadmill. So then when the moment comes and you need to run, mm-hmm. you know, you're not fit. You don't have those skills. Your body hasn't developed those muscles. So that's been really interesting coming through this trimester and having a little bit of energy on the other side, because I don't think it's useful to a spouse that we have to have some type of spiritual practice we sit down to do every single day. And yet a few times a week makes me more able to connect with that longing that I have and Mm -hmm. those desires. And the thing that, in my opinion, makes life juicy I feel you. It is that balance between really consciously and intentionally inviting these moments because, yeah, if you don't, most of the time, depending on the season of life you're in, of course, if you don't have loads of space and opportunity, it doesn't happen by accident. You know, it is It is that. And yet there are such simple ways of resourcing ourselves and contacting and ritualizing the beauty and the wonder and the pleasure that exists all around us. And so I'm always, I suppose, dancing between those two realities. And I feel like, yeah, I feel like that's a nice permission for people who are like, oh God, I would love to have this big, beautiful devotional practice. And yet, what the fuck, you know, like that feels impossible and weird and awkward. Um, So there's all these different ways in, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Mm, I hear you. And I like the word that you use ritualizing because I think you can take any component of your day and make that your more formalized devotional practice. Mm -hmm. If it's your little tea ceremony in the morning, there's many cultures that have ritualized tea ceremonies as Mm -hmm 
these types of devotional practices um, or a million more, whatever it is that you mm-hmm. do with that specific attitude. <sighs> For me, it's embodiment practices. Yeah. That's my jam and the thing that I love the most. Yeah. And that is just I love it the most because it yields the most fruit for me. Like the fruit of the practice is succulent and juicy when I do those practices compared to others, mm-hmm. which might take longer or just for my type of body don't work as well. Mm. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I was called into your orbit because of the succulence of embodiment. (laughs) So we met in 2017 and I was part of the first cohort of the Feminine Embodiment Coaching Certification. So through the gorgeous School of Embodied Arts and it's I've been very, very lucky to actually be part of the team ever since I graduated. So I still get to be plugged into this incredible training. And, you know, I've really watched uh, as this training has matured and ripened and and kind of, you know, been part of it in my own little ways and uh, which has felt really, really special. But I think as I witness the gosh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of women that have come through this training now, it's like there is such a longing. There is just this insatiable hunger for so many women to, and and half of them say, and I always like try to normalize it when they share, half of them say, I've got no idea what I'm doing here. And they say that kind of when they stumble across my work separately around grief and pleasure as well. It's like, I honestly don't really know why I'm here, but there's something in this for me. I listened to this, I read this, and I was just completely called into, you know, exploring it. And I know there's something in it. And I know that you know what I'm talking about here, but what is this deep yearning, this deep longing that I guess I make sense of it through this absence, you know, this absence of deep connection um, to self. What? How do you interpret it, Jenna? That's an excellent question. And I would love to define it concisely and clearly so all of our brains can say, aha, <laughs> right. that box, I understand that totally. But I sense and I feel that for many of us, there is some type of void in the way that we're doing lives predominantly. And the nature and the texture of that void is very unique and it's very individual for each of us. For me, that void, as I've described a little bit earlier, and it's the same kind of longing and absence that I've had ever since I really just started questioning the world around me and what is it that I want? I was at the top of my career ladder by the time I was in my mid-20s. And I was like, okay, so where do I, what do I do now? There's no more money to make. There's no more runs to ascend. Like, what do you do when you've got all the things you want, but your life is like a quarter over? Right. That's just ridiculous. So instead of like looking for a bigger house, my interests and my inquiry began to turn within to like, okay, well, what, what else is here within me? 
And so to answer your question, I feel like for many of us who begin to ask questions outside the dominant culture, instead of saying, well, I'll I'll get a bigger house or a bigger mortgage or the next career promotion, when we start, and there's nothing wrong with those things, but when we start looking inside and saying, okay, well, what's going to satiate and aliven me? What is it within me? I feel that there's a huge spectrum of flavors of people and what alivens them and what turns them on. And I can only explain that my particular flavor is like one star in the sky. And there's this huge constellation that is the Milky Way. But some people's like star or flavor, it lands similar in a closish space to me in mm. the starry sky. We're not the same, but where we want to hang out is kind of similar. Mm. Our, our like how you might navigate to us or our location in the cosmos, it's similar-ish. And we tend to, without a lot of logical explanation why, we tend to gravitate like an orbital, like we begin to orbit towards that gravitational pull because mm -hmm. there's something there for us. They might have something figured out, a piece of practice, a philosophy and insight. And these these gravitational forces can change over time. But generally speaking, I feel like we all have a very individual and distinct flavor, but there can be a resonance of our location in the night sky that just answers or calls in somewhat of a spiritual way, but also it's like it's underneath often the words that you're saying to the real, the resonance of what is being said. That's how I found my way into the work that I do. And that's the principle that I've used to make a lot of big decisions in my life based on the feel of it, mm -hmm. which is very countercultural because most of the time we've got a list of pros and cons and whichever list is longest, then that's the rational and logical and linear decision. But kind of those who are around <laughs> where I hang out in the night sky, we're a little bit more interested in the feel of it. Mm -hmm. And so even if I might read somebody's, like, for example, even if I might read your blog and say, I don't really consciously know what she's saying, there's other parts of that that are speaking to me and some part of my body might respond. In fact, I've spoken with one of your past clients who's a mutual friend of ours. And she said to me, I was reading her words She's talking about your expression yeah. here. She's like, I was reading her words and I just was like, for us, I just, it just brought up a lot of feelings inside me that I didn't really understand. And I was like, I got to go investigate this. And I think uh -huh. that personifies it really beautifully because it's like something arises and responds. Mm -hmm. I think that's how we choose partners in life. You know, we don't necessarily make a list of pros and cons of who we might fall in love with or marry or partner with to have children. That's based on the feel of it. And it seems mm -hmm. very acceptable to do that in the realm of romantic love, but it's not so acceptable to use that as a premise for decision-making in other quadrants of your life. Mm -hmm. So I explain it through assuming that we are maybe just some kind of like extended star family that are just destined to hang constellation. around. <laughs> yeah. An embodied constellation. I love that. I'm getting such beautiful visuals on that one, Jenna. I appreciate it. And it made me think that, you know, it's so, it's widely thrown around 
uh, and I, I write a bit about it. I'm really curious about our blueprints, you know, the ways in which um, ways of being are passed down the mother line and, you know, whether that be attachment wounding or um, way addiction or defenses, whatever that is. But I feel like it's so important to acknowledge that we also have these incredible blueprints ancestrally that that call us towards our creativity, you know, our sensuality and really blossoming in those ways. And so our blueprint is not just something that I think in this kind of pop culture era of like pop psychology where everyone knows stuff about like 5% of <laughs> 5% of what's happening in the brain. So we all talk about it. It's like, actually, we we're not always, or we don't always have to be on this quest to make ourselves better and heal ourselves, but actually our body holds this incredible compass towards our aliveness, towards what makes us feel whole and full. And, and I feel like the realms of feminine embodiment and all of the offshoots of that have brought me so much closer to that blueprint within me. And so I just love that you describe it. It is an orbiting and it is like this mystery, but a lot of the time it is, it feels like this homecoming, you know, which is so beautiful and also can be really painful, <laughs> can be really challenging. Uh, and there is a lot of recognizing those ideas perhaps that we had about who we were, who we are, our identity, personality that can evoke layers of grief because if we don't have this kind of homecoming or at least we're approaching, you know, we're awakening to the possibilities of who we might be until closer to midlife, there's a big chunk there, right, of time that we haven't fully engaged with the fullness of who we are and yeah, I know that we've kind of spoken about this and you shared a little bit about this in terms of your owning your creativity as well. And I'd love for you to, yeah, just kind of share a little bit more about what it meant for you to come home to your to yourself through the body and, um, yeah, all that rippled out from there. When I was first transitioning away from a more typical approach to life and into something that was really fueled by what actually really brings me meaning and brings me alive and turns me on. The very first few years, I found myself in schools of thought, which were, as you just pointed out, all about healing yourself. So if things aren't going how you expect them to be, we like the schools of thought that I was initially kind of trained in were around, well, there's a deficit in some mm -hmm. aspect of your being and it's your responsibility to identify and fix effectively or resolve that. So this really strong emphasis on healing, which I don't have a problem with healing, but when healing becomes the point, to me that is a fruitless cycle that's actually never going to evolve anywhere. 
So at one, at a certain point, I just decided I was just exhausted from having to heal and fix myself from everything because there's just too much. Like how far down each ancestral line do I have to go? How far into my body and up into the sky? Like I can keep sourcing more things to find. We can heal heal forever. We would be here forever. And it didn't bring me the aliveness and zest that I was looking for. So I began to think, well, okay, well, healing can be useful. It can have its place. There is definitely an aspect, particularly for those of us who have experienced some type of really overt big traumas or micro traumas, like I'm all for healing modalities. But actually what I wanted more of was more aliveness and more creativity and to look at how I could inhabit me more fully and bring more of me more alive. And that's a very different orientation to fixing yourself or correcting some deficit or working on some perceived problem so that you can be what, you know, I often see this play out, this dynamic in relationships, like I need to heal A, B, C, D, X, Y, Z, so I can be ready for a partner to attract them or to get married to them or to have a child with them. And it's like, oh, it's a very interesting goal to hold this goal of it's like you're a house to renovate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when my interest began to shift more fully to inhabiting me and bringing more of me alive, there was actually a lot of grief in that process because I realized how much of me was turned off and dormant. Mm-hmm. Some very specific aspects of my identity, my sexual self, my sensual self, which is quite different to my sexual self, my sensual self, and my creative aliveness. Mm. So I come from a family of sugarcane farmers who have their own businesses, but and I had been a hospital pharmacist. So this idea that I was a creative person who could make art was just totally foreign to me. I genuinely believed I was not creative, couldn't write, couldn't create, couldn't do anything. And that story in retrospect just has no charge. But at the time it felt like, well, this defines my career options to like this wide because I'm just not a creative person. Right. And in a lot of ways, also not being connected to that sensual aspect of my identity denied me of a huge amount of power as Mm -hmm. a woman. And I feel like that's one of the big differences between really being in this less mature, innocent maiden energy, the maiden who's willing to kind of be led around and told what she wants and her happy ending is maybe like being rescued Mm -hmm. versus like this more empowered energy of a woman who's like, well, I'm sensually and sexually alive and actually I'll define what I want for myself. Thank you very much. Oh, amen. <laughs> so for me, there was quite a lot of um, coupling between sensual aliveness, creative aliveness, and the deep grief that I had never been initiated into these things. Yeah. And looking back, it just, I have such a sensually alive, creative life now. It just fragments my head to think that that would be absent from the mix somehow. And yet it it doesn't take much to look around me and notice that it's absent for a lot of people. Right. So a lot of that grief looked like 
sitting with what I deeply longed for and yearned for. Like I could see other sensually alive women around me. I could see creative alive women around me. And I was like, how do do I get there? Mm -hmm. How do I become alive and awake to that? And a lot of that, instead of, instead of, and this is where I think sometimes embodiment is a little bit different to other types of personal development. It wasn't about getting something from outside me and putting it over the top. It was about more investigating deep within me. Where is that sensuality? And very often there is a lot of uncomfortable and tender layers between you and that thing that you're longing for. Some of those uncomfortable layers might be a grief and a sadness and a loss. Some of them might be an anger and a rage and a frustration. Some of them might be hurt and humiliation. A lot of them are dishonoring and none of them are comfortable to feel. But unless we actually, in the model of feminine embodiment, unless we're actually willing to be with all those things that sit on top of the cap of, let's say, our creativity or our sensual aliveness, we can't actually access that resource from within us. Right. Otherwise, it's just a performance. You know, you can put on some lingerie and put on some Beyonce and do some moves, but if you're not feeling it from the inside out, it's not sustainable. Yeah. It's a a performance rather than a beingness. Mm -hmm. So I've experienced a lot of grief in a lot of ways in life, but one of the most profound that really sticks with me is that process of the reclamation of the certain parts of me that I didn't even know. It's like they were limbs that had just been amputated, that Mm -hmm. needed to be reattached Mm -hmm. so I could live. Quick break from today's conversation to share with you a really exciting new free online workshop that I'll be running September 12th to 13th. It's called Embolden. And we'll be coming together for a two-day play shop, not a workshop, a play shop to harness courageous expression and for you to relish in creative risks. So your firebelly desires, the ones that keep you up at night, stop drying you up and wearing you out and instead begin to turn you all the way on and actually nourish you. Because here is the thing, if you want to be truly felt by others, it takes courage. Not the faux bravado of performance or following the blueprints and templates so you are fully seen and fully heard. That is all beautiful and important, but you need to be felt to cut through the noise. And this you can't fake. We're talking about congruence here. We are talking about not just slogging your guts out and contorting your gifts, but fully embodying your spice and special source. You are a wise, brilliant woman and you have way too much to offer to just throw in the towel. So during our two-day emboldened play shop, you are going to be really planting those roots. We are going to be exploring your depth your creative expression in ways that you may not have explored before. So to register, jump onto kateleeper.com slash embolden, learn more, and I will be seeing you September 12th and 13th. Now back to this juicy conversation. Yeah. 
Oh, everything. I mean, I was just nodding furiously uh, at everything you were sharing. And I just know that there will be so many women who can just deeply relate to your story. And I wonder as well if there's others who maybe like my experience, I knew I was very creative from a very young age and yet the ways in which culturally I was shaped and kind of contorted into expressing and performing, quote unquote, my creativity. In hindsight, I see that. And as much as I I knew that, like for me, when I was singing, dancing, acting, writing, that was when I felt most me. But over the years, I kind of watched this, yeah, this like tightening in, this boxing in of my creativity that happened time and time and time again. And then the naturally as you know, as um, many women can probably identify with, there's this comparison with others. Do I look? Do I sound? Do I, um, you know, do I compare? Are are we, um, you know, am I good enough? All of those kind of things. And so creativity becomes less of this innate quality that is nurtured and treasured and really valued for its uniqueness. And more of this commodity or this thing that we like pretty up and particularly for girls, I think. And so that, I guess, for me, just really led to a similar place to you, funnily enough, where I reached a point where I thought, well, I'm maybe not in the top 1% that's going to make it as you name it, you know, and like I, um, almost went into fine arts acting and decided, no, I better be sensible. I better do my education degree. Um, And I stopped writing and things like that because, well, you don't, it's not really a very practical, reliable career, you know, being an author. And so all of these ways in which I decided that my creativity was actually not going to benefit me or I wasn't good enough for it, then sent me off, you know, down this academic path, which again, I have so much um, gratitude for. It's brought me to this place, but there is absolutely grief in me that I just really severed my creative connection. And um, it's been like this muscle over the last I guess decade, but really like six or seven years, this muscle that I've like been (laughs) training up again. And so now it's just flowing through my veins and it is about the beingness as opposed to the doing. But isn't it interesting how we, so many of us have these different paths, but whoop, we end up kind of on a very similar journey, particularly around that like late teens, early twenties time that seems to be familiar. Unfortunately, you use the word commodify, and I do feel that the need for something to be productive and yield a a dollar value, and if it doesn't yield a dollar value, then mm-hmm. it's like a hobby or something that's cute but not really essential to life. Yeah. 
to side effect of living in a capitalist culture to which much of our culture and our aliveness is sacrificed at the altar of profit. And we're indoctrinated to, into this before we even know it's a thing. Like my list of how to choose a career when I was in grade 12, I had two categories on my list. It was make lots of money, don't touch dirty people or their feet. <laughs> I don't know. I had a weird thing about feet. I didn't want to touch dirty feet. So I was then, will I be an accountant or a pharmacist? That's wow. literally how I choose my, chose my profession, make lots of money. So, you know, again, there's nothing wrong with making lots of money. But when we're indoctrinating and stamping out creativity because it doesn't get commodified, we do that because we all need to make a living. I need money to live. You need money to live. Money is not evil, but we sacrifice too much at the altar of it, too many parts of ourselves. Yeah, you nailed it. Yeah, this is exactly it. And I think that it takes a really intentional effort and uh, and the devotional part to really decide that creativity and sensuality are pivotal, right? It's not just, yeah, the, the little thing that I do on the side when I have time or if I've deserved it. Uh, much in the same vein as pleasure. You know, we talk a lot about pleasure on this podcast, but for me, sensuality and creativity, it's its all part of that aliveness fuel. And it's the same thing. It's like if I neglect putting pen to paper and just free writing poetry that doesn't necessarily make sense to anyone and probably sounds like ap- absolute shit, then I will feel worse for it. Mm-hmm. And then you know, that then is the starting place for me to like come back to that and go, oh, I can tweak that and play with that. And, oh, I love that word. And that language sounds great. And I love reading that. That actually fuels me. Like I feel, I feel present and connected to myself and and the world in greater ways, just because I like spent 10 minutes scribbling words because I'd had this, um, I'd had something in me that just needed to come out, right? And that is non-negotiable for me, but it took a long time, I think, to get there. And I think once women get a taste, I think that's the thing. It's like, you can't unknow or unfeel what you feel and you all of a sudden need more. Is that, was that your experience? Yes, it was. (laughs) Things work better in life when you're connected to creativity and sensuality. So as I kind of reattached those limbs and re-explored those muscles, life worked so much better, was so much more enjoyable. I don't think it has to make it more productive, but it did actually become a lot more productive in a useful sense, became more lucrative. Like, I, I think you can do creativity and sensuality because it's just something that makes life worthwhile to you. Yeah. But the side effect was a much better life for me. So it became a very obvious equation that the more of these things that exist, the better I feel. And the more my life looks like the way that I desire it to be, 
So it's just win, 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 except for the ex-boyfriend who wasn't so happy with my sensual awakening and who I needed to leave behind, but everyone uh, else was happier. How sad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you win some, you lose some, Jen. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there's a Beyonce song about like, you need to be oh, able for sure. to handle all of this. For sure. And yeah. if you can't, it's your problem. That's right. And you really, I guess, um, brought up a very good point that with this flexing of the muscles, the sensual, creative, aliveness muscles, and the willingness to actually be with some of the messier um, aspects of the grief in that reclamation process, there is going to be inevitable shifts and changes. And some you might have to go through some challenging stuff in order to then come to that space of going, oh, my life does feel so much better for it. And uh, I'm so grateful I'm here. But there are, yeah, there's, you're going to lose people and um, and ideas and identities and and all of the rest. So I think for many women who do get a taste and want to keep pursuing that or, or being sourced by all of this yumminess, there is half the time a reluctance because I think there's a knowing that hmm, things uh, might have to change here and pretty significantly. I think it's very natural to be apprehensive of needing to burn your life down. And I've often found <laughs> that yeah. sometimes there are some moments where on this journey of let's describe it as this journey of reclamation of creativity and sensuality, there are some big things that have changed for me. I have changed careers. I changed partners. I've changed a lot of identities. I've changed locations where I've lived. I've changed bank balances. A lot of things have changed. It's also been like a decade. So those things would probably have changed already. And at the same time, there's been a lot of times where because this cycle doesn't just happen once. I think as you've described this process of claiming and of reclamation, it's something that keeps going. I'm currently on this next circuit of reclaiming some creativity. So I, my philosophy on this, I'm not saying it should be anyone else's, but my philosophy on this is you've got to put all your cards on the table if you really want to have your hand all in. So you, my philosophy is I put everything on the table. If I'm meant to burn this down, this business, this marriage, this life, this home, this whatever, I probably won't put my children on the table, but, you know, like it's actually <laughs> we'll quite them. hard to get rid of your child. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm joking. Like I'm willing to put everything on the table and mm. consider it. Not mm -hmm. because I need to press action on all of that, but because if I don't put it on the table, if I don't at least contemplate is what's best for me to let go of mm -hmm. X, if I don't at least contemplate that, I'll never find resolution. And I might come to the decision that it does need to be let go of, but not right now and not even in five years but there is an inevitability that it will happen at some point. And even that can bring a measure of peace. So I do understand the apprehension because a lot of the stories that we hear about these processes of transformations are like, well, I blew up my life and now it looks totally different. 
And I do think you do need a little degree of courage to be able to put it on the table, but not because it has to get actioned. And very often I put things on the table only to realize I want to pick that card back up and I'm going to hold on to it. But now I'm really clear that I'm holding on to it for the right reasons. So I have a much cleaner, healthier relationship, cleaner, healthier relationship mm-hmm. with it. Mm-hmm. That's all very metaphorical. I wish I could give you a literal example. <laughs> I can. Uh, about a little while ago, I won't put a time frame on it, but a little while ago I was looking at my business. So I run the School of Embodied Arts that we've spoken about earlier. I was looking at my business and I was pretty sure I wanted to continue to do it, but I needed to do things differently. And so one of the cards I had to put on the table in that journey of contemplation is do I, you know, do I, do I move away from this business? I don't know if that would mean selling it or having a different structure or closing it, or I didn't necessarily know what it meant, but I had to contemplate, am I not meant to have this business anymore? Which was a very uncomfortable thing to contemplate because it's like, that's my livelihood. So it's Mm -hmm. a very awkward thing to contemplate. But as a result of contemplating it, I could see, oh, actually I want to keep it. And these are the things that need to change in order to keep doing it. So it was a really clarifying process and nothing had to actually get burnt down, but -hmm. things needed to get reconfigured, reconfigured. Yeah. Yeah. I think that such wise um, advice and just really allows for this reframing around transform, you know, transformation and, and this, the personal development uh, lingo that we do here. It's just like, well, if you feel, um, if there's an urge to do something, then yes, you need to make instant change and burn if it up. If it's not a hell yes, then it's a hell right? no. I think yeah. that's, oh, maybe I got that around the wrong way. You know the one though. Yeah, if you're yeah, not yeah. A yes, then you're a no or something like that. I'm like, okay, well, put all the cards on the table and then have yeah. a really good feel into it. It's going to take time to decide. I'm a big advocate for maybe. And also I'm becoming an even bigger advocate for not yet. Hmm. And I think that we really need to um, just give a little more space to that. And I think that's exactly what you're you're speaking to. And we have, I remember having a conversation recently with someone on the podcast around that. It's this idea that it's okay to know, to hear, to to feel a certain way, and then not have to take immediate action to be with that. And that's a really essential part of growing and evolving. And yeah. yes. In the feminine embodiment coaching model, when we speak about boundaries and making decisions, taking action is a different step to making a decision. Mm -hmm. Like you can make a decision and there's actually three steps. Make a decision, actually really get full and clear and deep in your conviction with that decision and then take action. Because very often we compress that and we make a decision and we instantly move into doing without the depth bit in the middle. And so now our doing is not really well formed. It's a bit shaky. We've only been in that decision one way or the other for half a second. Mm-hmm. And we often don't have the the fullness. And so our action collapses. Yeah. So I'm a big fan of like, yes, and it's taking time. Yes. And I'm deepening my yes. That's right. 
That's Let right. it get full in your whole being. Oh, that is such a perfect way, I think, to bring our conversation to a close. Everybody just breathe into that beautiful permission and opportunity to just let yourself be in whatever stage, phase, feeling uh, as you move towards any change. Let it be okay. Let the decision be full. Thank you, Jenna. It has been a delight to chat with you today. Thank you for having me and for everyone to join us for this conversation. Thank you. And just as we close as well, um, where can people best find you, learn from you and get to know you? Jump over to jennaward.co, C-O. It's the same Instagram handle. And we've got this really delicious somatic self-coaching worksheet that I think takes a few of the principles we've spoken about today in a form that you can do on and with yourself at home. I'd recommend checking that out if you're interested as a great place to start. It's free. Yeah, perfect. Nice little introduction, nice little taster. And uh, while you're there, have a little look at the Feminine Embodiment Coaching Certification. If uh, that takes your fancy, I highly recommend it. (laughs) Thank you again, Jenna. Have a beautiful rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today on the Sensualchemy School podcast. If you found this episode supportive or something landed for you here, please share it with your friends, family, and anyone who you feel might benefit. If you're loving this podcast, I'd be so grateful if you'd leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to ensure that we can keep bringing you the conversations you need. And if you want to connect, please find me at kateleeper.com or over on Instagram at kate.leeper. I'd love to hear from you.